Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Slate's Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and enter offer code CULTURE at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. And by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Fundamentals of Photography. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com culture. And by Bowl and Branch, making luxury bedding affordable and convenient to order from home. Bowl and Branch sheets are made from organic cotton that's fair trade certified. And right now, get $50 off a set of sheets plus free shipping when you go to bowlandbranch.com and use the promo code CULTURE. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com and the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Life Money Art Edition. It's Wednesday, June 24th, 2015. On today's show, Inside Out is the new delight-delivering, box-office-crushing brainchild of the animation studio Pixar. We will discuss whether we liked it, and then the possibility of swapping out Alexander Hamilton's For the Likeness of a Woman on the $10 bill raises a host of interesting questions, certainly one of which is, what does money look like and what should it look like? We'll discuss that. And finally, the new Renzo Piano Whitney Museum has opened in Lower Manhattan, and Dana and Julia toured it with its new chief curator, Scott Rothkoff. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. How you feeling? Oh, oh we're going to go there already, okay. are we? Say hi to Dana, then we'll go there. Okay, and of course, uh, Dana's, uh, and of course, oh my God, the symptoms. <laughs> I'm being overwhelmed by my infirmity. And of course, the film critic of Slate.com, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Uh, so we're referring, of course, to the only ailment that could possibly have kept you from our appointment at the Whitney this morning with its new chief curator and your dream boyfriend, Scott Rothkopf. You've got Lyme disease. <laughs> I do. I do have Lyme disease. I was uh, overwhelmed by a fever and chills over the weekend and had been bitten by a deer tick, but I don't know, a week before that or so. So here I am. I'm on horse pill antibiotics. But, you know, as one of the symptoms is kind of irritability and foggy headedness it does raise the question whether i've had this since i was 12 years old (laughs) oh my god it also makes you more fit than ever to be the host of this week's show (laughs) (laughs) i have like triple chronic lime stretching back decades but in its acute form it's now being properly treated all right well i'm glad to hear that you are on the mend but we missed you at the whitney 
I know. I really wanted to go. I so missed going. But Julia, we have uh, other business to deal with before we move on with the show. What do we got? Yeah, before we start chatting about our subjects this week, we wanted to take a moment to ask you, our listeners, to do us a favor. It helps people discover our show if they can find us in iTunes. iTunes is still the place where a lot of people go to discover new podcasts, check out what's on the charts. And we have not asked you guys in a while to help us with our iTunes maintenance. So there are three things you can do on iTunes that will help people find our show. One is make sure you're subscribed to our show in iTunes. Some of you listen to us on the Slate Daily feed, some on the Slate Plus feed. No matter where you listen to us, please make sure that whatever your podcast app is, you subscribe to the Slate Culture Gab Fest standalone feed. We'll make sure to have an extra link to that highlighted in our show page this week, but, it, but subscribing to the show itself really does help us. The other two things you can do are rate our show and leave a review. And if those of you who have a spare minute this week could all go and leave your thoughts, make sure you're subscribed, generally help us practice good iTunes hygiene, it will help more people find the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Yeah, people sometimes ask after live shows, what can I do to support your show? And that really is one of the most influential places that you could leave a comment. The other thing is just to update you all on the state of Summer Strut. Thank you so much for your many submissions. We now have a master playlist with which intern Lindsay is concocting in her lab. The numbers are stretching into the hundreds. So thank you, everyone who submitted. And actually, there's one more thing, which is just our Slate Plus segment. We, this week, are going to share the advice we wish we could have given our 18-year-old selves. So we will travel back in time and tell our 18-year-old selves what we wish we had known when we were that age. All right, Steve, let's dig in. Lovely. Okay, let's move on. Inside Out is the new Pixar movie. It tells this very standard story of a young girl whose family moves away from a beloved childhood home, but it tells it in a completely unstandard way. It tells it inside out, as it were. We go inside 11-year-old Riley's mind, where the girl's five dominant emotions have been rendered as warring caricatures, and we watch as she and fear, anger, disgust, sadness, and joy perform the hard work of integration and maturity. The movie is being called by critics a triumph, and of course it triumphed at the box office, as Pixar tends to do. Let's listen to a clip. First day of school. Very, very exciting. I was up late last night figuring out a new plan. Here it is. Fear. I need a list of all the possible negative outcomes on the first day at a new school. Way ahead of you there. Does anyone know how to spell meteor? Disgust. Make sure Riley stands out today, but also blends in. When I'm through, Riley will look so good, the other kids will look at their own outfits and barf. Joy. Yes, Joy? You'll be in charge of the console, keeping Riley happy all day long. And may I add, I love your dress. It's adorable. Oh, this old thing? Thank you so much. I love the way it twirls. Train of thought. Right on schedule. Anger. Unload the daydreams. I ordered extra in case things get slow in class. Might come in handy if this new school is full of boring, useless classes, which it probably will be. Oh, sadness. I have a super important job just for you. Really? Mm-hmm. Follow me. What are you doing? And there. Perfect. This is the circle of sadness. Your job is to make sure that all the sadness stays inside of it. So that scene sort of speaks for itself. It comes from early in the film. And you can hear there that Amy Poehler, who voices Joy, uh, is sort of the principal character at the beginning of the movie, essentially. When we visit this console inside of the brain of Riley, this 11-year-old girl, Joy is the one who's in charge of sort of managing the whole operation. And then we hear her speaking, too. And let's let's count down who voices the other emotions. Bill Hader as fear, Louis Black as anger, and uh, Mindy Kaling as disgust. And then at the end, you can't see this part, so we sort of need to describe it. She draws a little chalk circle on the ground of... 
Riley Brain headquarters and makes Sadness, who's voiced by the wonderful Phyllis Smith from The Office, stand in this circle and not move. So that actually gets at a lot of the themes of the movie being set up at the beginning, which essentially have to do with growing up and the place, the changing place of different emotions in a growing brain. So the idea of joy at the beginning of the movie is that Sadness is essentially just a drag who needs to be quarantined and kept as far away from the operational center of Riley's brain as possible. And uh, and there you hear Phyllis Smith as Sadness sort of resigning herself to her place in the circle. Beautiful summation. Now, I'm very curious to know, Dana, how you felt about the movie. It seems as though it's inspired a pretty uniform response among critics that it's really a triumph. Yeah, there's been a very minimal pushback. I, I sort of feel like there, there always has to be that one contrarian wing of critics. And I think the main criticism of the movie has been that the human world is not as interesting as the emotion world, which we can talk about. I think that may be somewhat true, but I still am one of the critics who did find it a triumph. I was already looking forward to it because A, it's a Pixar movie, and B, it's one of the few Pixar movies, the only one really except for Brave, that's had a female protagonist. And if you really think about it, this movie sort of has three female protagonists. There's Riley, the little girl in the human world, and then joy and sadness who really become kind of the main two emotions since a lot of the narrative involves them getting separated from headquarters and having to find their way back through Riley's brain or heart or soul or memory or whatever this abstract zone is in which we find ourselves. Mm. All right. Well, Dana thought it was a triumph and so did I. But Julia, I'm very curious to know what you made of it. But do you first need me to explain to you the concept of an interior life? (laughs) The whole thing was just so startling. Um, no. it, was, it was like confronting a non-carbon-based life form. For you, I right? want to see Steve's diagram of the inside of Julia's brain. <laughs> <laughs> we should each draw the inside of each other's brains and put it on Slate Plus. We've been doing it for seven years. Come on. I feel like that would be a good, a good, a good sketch follow-up project for us from the old Sketch Steve competition. Um, I loved the movie. I loved it. I mean, I think it's a hard movie to see in some ways. It's beautiful, but it made me weep. And I think it's a lot about the responsibility that parents have for creating the emotional life of their children or shepherding it or stewarding it or in some way fostering it in ways that are useful. And I found that to be not like news exactly, but sobering in a way like I feel a little bit like yeah my kids are too they're surrounded by love like it's all gonna be fine a couple Mm -hmm. tantrums this way or that way a few times when I'm like at the office a few missed bedtimes here and there whatever and I did find that the movie made me think in surprisingly complicated ways about my emotional responsibilities as a parent the emotional development of my children and also I think Like, whether this movie's theory of how emotions function in a developing child's brain is right. And I think, greatly to the movie's credit, it seems to have a theory. I mean, it's one that I'm not sure we can fully dissect without spoiling the movie too much. But this is a movie with ideas about the psychology of children, much more so than, like, your average summer animation kids and parents flick, right? Pretty complex mm. ideas too, and and we can get into this a little bit, but not too much without spoiling. But some pretty some pretty dark and uh, and complicated ideas that mm-hmm. that aren't all about sort of the reign of joy and the childhood brain. In fact, you know, Pete Docter, who's the director of this movie, also directed Up, which is always remembered for its extremely sad opening sequence, the opening montage with the with the waltz that tells the story of this marriage that that ends in the death of the the wife. And I think a lot of that emotion, that mo- emotion of kind of mixed joy, nostalgia, sadness, regret loss is is wrapped up in this movie. It's it's almost like a movie-length version of that up montage. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Dana, I totally agree to the extent that Pixar and Disney, uh, now they're intertwined with one another, but to the extent that they've been conducting an Oxford-style debate with one another, with Disney stipulating that childhood is meant to be a protected sphere, highly sentimentalized by adults, completely innocent on the part of children, with Pixar saying, no, in fact, life is vastly more complicated. This is Pixar, you know, sort of delivering the death blow in some sense. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really resolving into a synthesized theory about why, you know, movies and childhood oughtn't be sentimental. And it has to do with touching upon what's real about us internally and what's real about the world externally and bringing them to, into alignment with one another via the harder emotions, right? And so I loved the movie. I went to see it with my 12-year-old daughter and my nine-year-old daughter. I spent two-thirds of it trying not to bawl out loud and completely embarrass both of them. It turned out I was seated directly in front of a famous actor. I'm really glad I didn't melt down in front of him. And um, Who? Uh, and Come on, co- Steve. No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna out him. But um, and my cover is that I like the um, idea that crying in front of a famous actor is some of the most shameful. <laughs> Maybe Rose Byrne will never brush her wrist again. <laughs> now I've now I've screwed up because it makes me sound pathetic. I actually didn't know he was there, and he's a friend of mine, and it's Chris Eigenman. But I just like Chris has this wonderfully cutting sense of humor, which is twice as funny and twice as. Uh, nuanced as the one that he often displays on screen and I just the thought of walking out of the theater and realizing that I split into a million tears directly in front of Chris Agamemnon was just too painful <laughs> and but my cover was there's a very very funny joke at the end of the film that I won't give away which is a tack on it's the cat joke it gives nothing away to say that that made everyone in the theater laugh so hard that I pretended I laughed so hard that I'd cried and then like wiped my tears uh with my hands like oh that's so funny um but anyway it th- Steve, can't what's... you be man enough to just own your own tears <laughs> no I can't but I think the interesting question about the movie Dana is The story that it does tell about her outer life is, and I think this is strategic and probably the right strategic choice, is very thin and pretty standard and not that surprising. So really the entire way to the movie is on this interior dynamic uh, between these warring emotions and how did that make us cry? Like I still am not entirely sure I can figure that one out. Yeah, this movie does have a certain kind of element of magic to it that it, that you sort of have to see to uh, to understand and that we don't want to get too deeply into. I mean, in, in relation to um to crying with your kids, I don't know if your daughters were deeply moved and, and saddened by parts of the film as well, but I saw it with my daughter who very rarely goes to the movies with me. It's hard to get her out into a theater, but I knew she would love this and I sort of dragged her and made her go. And, uh, and she always makes fun of me for crying in movies and TV shows and commercials and all the other things that I cry at. And uh, and sure enough, when the, um, when the really sad parts of this movie hit, I would cry and I looked over at her and she was sobbing too. And I think it may be the first time that we've cried together in a movie, but I hope it's not the last because it was wonderful. Uh, That's really sweet. I'm imagining that uh, marble of family memory rolling into her her brain in a in a beautiful way. I hope it doesn't fall into the pit of oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's interesting is just seeing the movie with with a 9-year-old prepubescent daughter and a 12-year-old kind of in the middle of it for whom life is all fear, anger, disgust and sadness and she's like what is this joy figure of which they speak? Um, oh. and it was just interesting to see the two of them interact that way. 
You know, I did a spoiler special podcast on this movie with Dan Coyce, the Slate editor, yesterday, and uh, it was lots of fun. People should listen to that if they want to hear the stuff that we can't talk about in this segment. And he mentioned that his two daughters, who I think are about the age of yours, Steve, about maybe seven and ten or something like that, have spent every day since seeing the movie drawing consoles of the insides of brains and pretending to be inside each other's brains and that it's, it's really sparked their imaginations. It is just a really imaginative rendering of the brain. And I think that's part of why it's so interesting. I mean, obviously, there are some things about the movie that have grand traditions in television and cinema and like the history of literature going back to Pilgrim's Progress, right? There's the notion of like, here's the figures in your brain representing the different impulses and instincts in your brain. Like we've seen that before. You're right. It's an allegory, straight up medieval And then allegory. the kind of straight up Slough of Despond allegory, like here's this weird abstract space that's your long-term memory and here's where memories die and here's imagination. And, you know, it's not, I don't think it's really too much to say that we, we meet these realms and the characters have experiences within the realms that symbolize various aspects of personality and psychology and emotional happiness. But Yeah, it's appealing because of the deafness and the particularity with which the film does that, I think, right? Like, you actually describing the film, it sounds like it could be super treacly or preachy or... Or too uh, abstract. Yeah, or too abstract, right? Schematic and overthought out and and allegorical in a way. And that's the thing I don't understand, because when you describe it, it as all those things. And when you experience it, it's kind of profoundly moving. I mean, I'm lost. It's the Lyme disease. I Well, I'm lost, too, and I have no tick to blame it on. I mean, I think part of it is the performances. Like, I think the vocal performances, particularly of Amy Poehler and Phyllis Smith, are just beautiful. And in some ways, it's like a it's a buddy movie, right? It's a road trip movie. Joy and sadness get separated from the others early on and have to kind of find their way. And it's also just physically very beautiful. I mean, the, the aesthetics of it are striking and unexpected and whimsical and there's lots of little jokes and details in them worth paying attention to. Well, the visual imagination of, you know, the design of the movie is really what keeps it from being this kind of dry abstraction that that it could easily be with such a high-level concept as it has. And so all of these things that we're talking about, memories, for example, have a physical form. They're sort of like little crystal balls that contain images from the past and there's a big storage bank that where all these old memories are stored and there's some there's just some great jokes in there. For example, there's maintenance workers that go up and down through these memory banks, sucking out the memories that are no longer needed, including things like the names of all the princess sparkle ponies that Riley loved when she was little. You know, so there's this very, very literal uh, physicalization of abstract concepts in the brain, including, this is one of my favorite jokes in the movie, the, the, the fields of abstract thought that they go through, where, as Sadness says, if we don't hurry, pretty soon we'll just be nothing but lines and colors. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, another masterful turn from Pixar. Go to Facebook.com. You're inevitably going to see this movie. You might as well come and tell us what you thought about it at facebook.com slash culturefest of course it's uh, inside out from pixar and director and co-writer pete doctor all right well now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor julia what do we have this episode is brought to you by squarespace start building your website today at squarespace.com which is a site that allows you to make your own website beautifully quickly professionally and fast Sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. There's no coding required. The tools are intuitive and easy to use, and the service is trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world, including 
the brand of Anne Hepperman, who, as we discussed on a recent episode, has been using Squarespace to run the site of the International Audio Fiction Award that she is administering, running, launching. And I think, you know, now that we've talked about Inside Out, we probably need to launch a Draw Dana's Brain website using Squarespace. But whatever website you're trying to get off the ground, you should give Squarespace a try. And in fact, Squarespace has a free trial for our listeners. And in fact, if you go to squarespace.com, you can start a free trial site today with no credit card required. So you can check it out and see if the service meets your needs. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CULTURE to get 10% off your first purchase of Squarespace. Squarespace, build it beautiful. All right, Steve, back to you. All right, thanks, Julia. Moving on. America's currency is a way for our nation to make a statement about who we are and what we stand for, so said Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu last week when announcing that the $10 bill was going to get an overhaul, which might bop Alexander Hamilton off it completely. It might not in favor of a yet-to-be-identified woman. He went on to say, Our paper bills and the images of great American leaders and symbols they depict have long been a way for us to honor our past and express our values. Julia, I think of you as a person who thinks about design and about signs and about uh, such designed and signifying objects as uh, paper money, but we've never talked about this. What do you make of the story, and what do you think our money says about us? I have so many thoughts about this story. I will try and express some of them in some comprehensible order. So first of all, I recognize that as a feminist, I should be very excited about the notion of putting a woman on a piece of American currency. I get that that is an idea that is supposed to be exciting to me. And yet I do not actually feel excited about it. I think part of the problem is the nature of the announcement, which suggests that Hamilton will be deposed or at least scooched aside. They've said that he will be joined on the $10 bill by a woman of some kind, which makes it unclear whether there are going to be two different $10 bills, one with Hamilton and one with a woman, whether they're going to be like posing together American Gothic style in the middle of a bill, whether there's going to be a woman on the bill and he's going to be like photobombing it and like sticking his little head out from behind her. Like it is the mechanics of it have not yet become quite clear to me. But I think I'm troubled slightly by the fact that the notion is to replace him with a woman, a woman. Like that makes it seem like the idea of diversifying the bills is the thing that's more interesting than recognizing any specific woman that we could get particularly excited about. There was, I think, just an informal kind of online straw poll earlier this year, and a bunch of people suggested Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman seems like a great choice. I would get excited if they announced that they were going to put Harriet Tubman on a bit of currency. I I remember being excited when Susan B. Anthony's face got stamped on one of those useless dollar coins that everybody hates a while ago. And thinking I it. love dollar coins, <laughs> and I love the Susan B. Anthony and Sacagawea dollar coins, and I don't understand why they flopped. I, well, I'm, I know I notice you toting a like heavy bindle of <laughs> of gold doubloons around on your shoulder, Dana. Yeah, with an actual dollar sign on the outside. <laughs> Dana only only carries her money around in bags. <laughs> no, but the, the MTA machines when you buy a, a metro card in New York subway give you a gold coin, not the Sacagawea as usually, unfortunately, but they give you a gold dollar coin as change. And I love those. I like to keep a nice little pile gold. of them. <laughs> gold colored. Gold colored. Gold colored. Oh, okay. In any event, so I object on some level to it being a woman and not some specific woman. It seems like a really bad time to depose or scooch aside Hamilton as opposed to Jackson, uh, just given that Hamilton is the subject of this incredibly popular 
and very good, I think, hit musical that's just jumping from the public to Broadway this summer. It seems like a moment of Hamilton mania is about to possess the country more broadly as this musical debuts and will likely be praised and get more attention and be the sort of thing that everybody goes to see when they come to New York. And needs, it's going to be the hottest ticket on Broadway for a year or something, I would I would wager, a stack of Hamiltons and Jacksons and Benjamins on that. And Jackson is like a reprehensible historical figure who like, I mean, what is the litany of things he's responsible for? In addition to fundamentally hating banking and currency and thus being inappropriate to be featured <laughs> on currency, also like ruined America for Native Americans, was responsible for all kinds of horrible things. So the notion that Hamilton would be deposed and Jackson would remain smiling on the bill also seems weird. The explanation I've read, and I'm not 100% sure that we know all the details yet, is that the 10 is just up next for a redesign, and they don't want to wait until the 20s turn, which seems like a slightly dumb procedural explanation to me. Mm. Yeah, and in general, like, I love... The notion, I love looking at money. It's really interesting. But who uses it, right? It feels like this incredibly, increasingly symbolic object as we go increasingly cashless. And so I'm all for playing with the symbols. Let's have like a jillion bills and tons of people on them and put everybody up on there. That seems fine. I think what struck me in reading about this redesign is how slowly American money changes compared to the currencies of other countries and just how 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 fixed our design has been. You know, I, I don't have the numbers in my mind right now, but our coins and bills change very, very slowly and also are not taken out of circulation when the design changes. So you can still use an old wheat shaft penny from the 40s or whenever they stop making that. All those things remain in circulation, whereas apparently the practice in many other countries is to withdraw something from circulation as soon as it's redesigned. So you just get the impression that from the governmental side, the whole stability and dignity of our banking system rests on the idea that our currency is this unchanging fixed thing and that the world recognizes an American green dollar bill as an American green dollar bill. I mean, it's a great icon of American capitalism, but it also feels like they're becoming increasingly ornamental and we should just treat them like confetti or like cupcake sprinkles. Like they should <laughs> let a thousand colors bloom, <laughs> put Mickey Mouse on there, whatever. I don't know. I, I feel like you could... It's a place where you could have a lot more fun and make it more like postage stamps or something. Yeah, I guess my point is that the federal government does not seem particularly into having fun with their money. Mm, no, not at all. I agree. Um, just always interesting when you go to another country to see the variability in size and color and even material of the of the actual bills. And of course, when you're someplace else, both the language... I mean, I think the two really elemental things that strike you as being cultural conventions that when you live within them strike you as being part of the fabric of nature or money and language, it does seem as though we want to make a claim to profundity and permanence about money that other cultures are way less inclined to do. I mean, it also should, it bears pointing out that until roughly 40 years ago, we were on an international gold standard and the dollar was more than symbolic. I mean, it was the one currency in the world that you could exchange for gold. And that had replaced pound sterling as the global currency, you know, accordingly. And so, you know, and we circulated, I mean, we do circulate huge amounts of our money. I mean, now, of course, in bits and bytes, but back then, you know, physically as well abroad in the form of petro and euro dollars. And so, I mean, it must be a kind of message 
externally as well as internally to say that this thing is profound and serious and unchanging and maybe it's not such a bad time we've been off gold since whatever 1971 i can't remember the precise year um steve you know, are you a gold yeah. bug are you and ron paul on the same page about this <laughs> no not <laughs> not in the least not in the least i mean thinking through those issues are fascinating like how money for almost all of human history was backed by some kind of metalism and then suddenly it wasn't and that was a huge change psychologically just as it's going to be something of a fairly significant psychological change to disappear completely the physical paper uh, money as well i don't think that's going to happen i mean i think that you guys are a little bit class blind when you say oh all we ever do is use credit cards i think there's still a huge cash economy that circulates i mean especially among people who don't have bank accounts and credit cards and such i mean money is still flying through hands everywhere in america yeah no it might not happen quickly dana but i think it will happen inevitably that that funny money becomes almost exclusively virtual yeah i think it will get there eventually I mean, you're right it it, it is in you know, the rarefied Uber taking realms of the world where it feels like super archaic to take out a wallet and actually pay for something. My God. Um, but I do. And in fact, your argument complicates what I was about to say, which is I actually I feel two distinct and separate things about this, which is why my initial answer is muddled. On the one hand, I recall our trip to Montreal last year where I Instagrammed a photo of Canadian currency, no doubt breaking some kind of international code of some kind. But they literally have like a hockey game on the back of one of their bills, just like <laughs> dudes like out, out on the pond, like shooting goals with like pads. There's literally just like dudes in hockey skates on some Canadian bill, which seemed like such a cliche. It seemed like what would be on the Canadian money in The Simpsons, right? It didn't seem real. It seemed <laughs> it seemed so flip and silly. And I, I Instagrammed it because it was kind of beautiful and kind of funny and kind of goofy and seemed super Canadian and, and not necessarily august and distinguished. And part of me feels like we should embrace that and just, you know, do what, put whatever the heck we want on our bills. It doesn't matter. But there's also a part of me that feels like, Currency will eventually die, and maybe it's okay that it just has a bunch of old dead white men on it, and they are relics of a past America, and the money is a relic of a past America, and, like, does it really change the life of anybody to have a have a woman on the bill in that way? Like... I guess I have to push back on that a little bit. I mean, it's a symbolic realm, but symbolic realms are important. That's what culture is made of. I mean, yes, it would be ideal if they had made the announcement after they had picked the woman, because it sounds kind of like, let's fulfill our quota to say, like, we need a woman on the bill. But I was sort of happy to hear that that was going to happen. I mean, even just the idea of have, having someone who's not a founding father, you know, who had some other kind of realm, who is some sort of change maker in the culture, like Susan B. Anthony or Harriet Tubman. Of course, this is before the introduction of the euro, and I'm not that familiar with euro money design because I haven't been to Europe much since they adapted it. But back in the, the days that I've spent a couple of years in France, the French money was so fantastic because of the variation in color, but also that the figures on it were often cultural figures. It wasn't always a politician, a king, a queen. It was often a writer. Pascal was on the money. Various philosophers and writers and cultural figures would appear on their money. And it just seemed so French and wonderful that they were affirming that part of their culture mm -hmm. and not just the dead white guys who founded everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. Flim flimsy counter-argument withdrawn. <laughs> you guys are right on that one. My mighty rhetorical powers again. Can we go around and say who we would want? What woman you would vote for in the straw poll? Uh, sure. I don't really have one myself. <laughs> I guess. Fuck. <laughs> uh, I'll start. Um, I'll start the bidding. I'll start the bidding with Nina Simone. Nice. Ooh, that'd be good. All right. Here's here's one. Laura Ingalls Wilder. Nice. 
To be honest, thinking about not booting Jackson yet, Laura Ingalls Wilder and her family didn't necessarily have the purest of relationships with uh, America's Native American population, but she represents our pioneer expansion and all of its complexities. Well, I mean, if we're going to start getting into people's questionable skeletons in their closet, let's look at the founding fathers who have been sitting there on the money for our entire history. All right. So my nomination for the female in the 10 is going to be Emily Dickinson. She's got a great face. She's one of America's mm-hmm. great writers. And she would she would look <laughs> awesome on a bill. I love that. I feel like, though, if it's Emily Dickinson, because of her, the way she issues poem titles, like she couldn't be in a portrait on the center. Like, I'd love to have her just kind of like, could they put a little window in the lower <laughs> back and have her just kind of like looking out of it, uh, you know, at some kind of wooden New England scene. I want scene. Her hiding behind the pyramid with the eyeball on top of it. <laughs> Could you just be like peeking out the side maybe? Or just put put an image of the house that she sequestered in for all those years. <laughs> and underneath her on a little banner it would say, I'm nobody, who are you? <laughs> I want Dana, I'm sorry. I It pains me to say this because you're so invaluable to Slate, but I officially have to sever your contract and devote your services to the Fed so you can come up with new money. <laughs> Off to the U.S. Mint, my guys. Hi, Dana. It's been real. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, of course, what I'm going to do is throw this out to you, listenership. Um, come to our Facebook page. Tell us what you would put on the bill or would you keep them exactly the same, sacrosanct and untouched? We're at Facebook.com slash CultureFest. What do you want to see on the uh, American buck? All right. Well, now is the moment in our show where we talk about our other sponsor. Julia Turner, what do we got? Yes, Steve. I'm very excited about our next sponsor. So most of the folks listening to this podcast are people like us who are interested in learning and expanding our minds and trying to make grown-up life compatible with continuing to learn and grow your brain, um, something that different aspects of adult life make more and less possible. And our sponsor this week, The Great Courses, can be a great aid in this endeavor. Uh, They offer engaging video and audio lecture series taught by top professors and experts in their fields. They have them on a range of subjects, but the one that I've been watching is The Great Courses series, The Fundamentals of Photography, which is taught by National Geographic photographer Joel Sartori. So first of all, you just get a National Geographic photographer to teach you how to take pictures, which if you're someone who is interested in photography as I am, but has not taken photos basically since my 10th grade class with Mr. Cheney. This is a really, really great resource. It's a series in 24 lectures. Uh, The opening one on making great pictures explains what three things every picture must have to stand out from just any old snapshot and what makes a photograph iconic. He also gets into lenses, focal lengths, shutter speeds, aperture, depth of field, and different subjects, wildlife, people and relationships, uh, special occasions, which I'm eager to learn more about. So again, this is The Fundamentals of Photography, taught by National Geographic photographer Joel Sartori. And The Great Courses has a special limited-time offer for Culture GabFest listeners. You can order from eight of their best-selling courses, including The Fundamentals of Photography, at up to 80% off the original price. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash culture. That's thegreatcourses.com slash culture. All right, Steve, back to you. All right, Julia, thanks a lot. As uh, we said before, I'm suffering from Lyme disease and therefore had to sit out the Whitney segment, which really was um, genuinely saddening because I did tour it very quickly about two weeks ago, loved the new building, which of course, Julia, is designed by Renzo Piano, the great architect. This means that they moved from a building that I also loved, the Marcel Breuer building on the Upper East Side uh, downtown, 
but it sounds as though you guys had quite a nice visit this morning at the Whitney. I'd love to hear all about it. Yeah, well, we'll play the audio in just a moment. But Dana and I went to the Whitney and met with Scott Rothkopf, who uh, has just been appointed the chief curator of the museum. He, of course, is the wonderful curator of the Coons exhibit, who was on the show a few months ago. And um, it's just a great explainer of and advocate for the art that his museum presents. And he told us a little bit about the museum, the move, the logistics of it, and the big show that's up there right now, America is Hard to See, which calls very broadly and deeply from the Whitney's uh, ever-growing collection. So let's listen to our interview. All right. Well, Dana and I have traversed, sadly, without Steve, to the Whitney, where we are standing in a lobby gallery with Scott Rothkopf, who spoke to us a couple months ago about the Coons show at the Uptown Whitney and who is becoming the chief curator of the Whitney next week. So hi, Scott, and congrats on your new position. Hi. Thanks. It's great to be back with you guys. We wanted to talk to you, I think, a little bit broadly about the Whitney, its history, and what it means for a museum to move to an entirely new, massive, gorgeous space in 2015. It's actually a pretty rare thing for an institution to do. So could you tell our listeners a little bit briefly just about the history of the Whitney and what precipitated this move? Sure, yeah. It's, it is pretty unprecedented, at least in New York, for a museum of our scale to move to a new location when we decide to expand. Certainly we've seen expansions at MoMA, at the Met, at the Guggenheim, all remaining in the place where they were basically since their founding. And what's interesting in the case of the Whitney is we've actually had a lot of different homes over the 85 years or so that we've been in existence. We were founded by a, a very wealthy heiress called Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, who herself was an artist and was in a kind of unhappy marriage and was friends with artists and would hang around in Greenwich Village where women of her social stature were not really meant to hang out with disreputable types like artists. And she founded what was called the Whitney Studio Club, which was a place where artists could come and take classes, go to parties, see exhibitions of works by their friends, as well as by other artists, even Picasso, for example. And um, when she was developing the studio club, she started collecting art, but she didn't really know what she was going to do with it. And around 1930, she and her founding director, Juliana Force, went to the Metropolitan Museum and offered their collection. And when the Met said that they didn't want this, famously the director said something to the effect of, you know, we have enough of this in our basement, no thank you, they decided that they would found their own museum. So um, the gallery that we're in here actually is a little bit about the early days of the Whitney and how we weren't founded as a museum, but as a club and as a place for artists. And that's something that we really try to to keep close to here. Also, Scott, this museum has moved more times than any major New York City museum, right? This is the fourth location the Whitney has had. Yeah, that's true. I think when we announced that we were moving downtown, a lot of people were really shocked by that news. And they said, how could you leave this Boyer building where we've been since 1966 because we were so identified with that structure? But in fact, that was our third home. And we'd moved basically three times in just the first 35 years of the museum's existence from 8th Street up to 54th Street near MoMA and then to Madison Avenue. And so, in fact, we'd been sitting still for a lot longer than we'd been used to in our early years. And moving downtown was really just continuing that cycle of uh, going to the place place where the Whitney can best serve its public and the artists we support. And one other thing that struck me in reading about the museum's move was just how much the museum's collection had grown since since you guys moved to the Breuer Building. I read somewhere, I think, that there were 2,000 pieces in the collection at the time that you guys moved into that building, which I loved architecturally. It was kind of just a great distinctive structure that um, both had character but didn't seem to, like, fight with the art that was in it, and that you now have more than 21,000 And so it sort of makes sense, I think, to find a place that has a little bit more room to hang them, right? Yeah, that's 
totally correct. When we moved into the Boyer building, we had around 2,000 objects in our collection, and now I think it's more than 22,000. It keeps changing almost on a weekly basis. Um, and, you know, we all love the Boyer building, and we may one day be back at the Boyer building as a two-site museum. We haven't sold that real estate. We're just... Um, working with the Metropolitan Museum for a limited term right now as they use it. And, you know, the fact is the collection has grown so much, we needed more space to show it. Also, the fact is that what museums do has changed a lot since 1966 when the Boyer Building was founded. So a lot of what we've gained here is, in fact, back-of-house space, uh, classrooms where artists and can come and work with students to make work, uh, expanded conservation uh, center where we can study works of art and look after them, a work on paper study center, even in an enclosed loading dock, which I know is not a really sexy thing to talk about, but let me tell you, if you're moving valuable works on and off Madison Avenue uh, in a rainstorm, you're happy now that we can, you know, pull down the, the door on the loading dock and bring the trucks in. So a lot of our expansion has to do, in a way, with playing catch up to uh, serve the kind of institution that we've become over the last 50 years in a way that uh, we weren't when the Breuer Building was built. In relation to that, can you give us the, the increase in square footage? Because I remember that the numbers were quite impressive, how much square footage this museum has compared to the Breuer building. Yeah, this building is around 200,000 square feet, depending on you know how you count indoor-outdoor space. Um, and the Breuer building was closer to 80. Here we have about 50,000 square feet of gallery space, and in the Breuer building we had closer to 30,000. So you see that there's significant gains in terms of the square footage, but also some of these other amenities I mentioned. So in our new building, uh, in addition to getting all this new gallery space. We also have a lot of new uh, back-of-house kind of spaces or spaces that help us serve our publics in different ways. We have a conservation center for the first time that's really an amazing uh, space. We have a work on paper study center. And we're really excited to have our first theater. The Whitney has a great history of presenting live performance, whether that's music, dance, poetry readings. But we've, in fact, never had a theater. And right now we're presenting a really uh, ambitious exhibition of uh, Conlon Nancaro's scores for player piano. He was someone who worked with all different um, famous choreographers and other composers and musicians, and our performance curator, Jay Sanders, has put together a really intensive week-long presentation of his work. All right, so we're here in Elevator A. One of the interesting things about this space, Scott, is the elevators. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yes, we're really excited that each of our elevators is in fact a unique sculpture that was designed by Richard Artschwager, an artist who's really dear to the Whitney in, in our collection. The one we're standing in is clad in formica, and it's based on a sculpture of Archwagers from the 60s uh, to look like you're standing underneath a table. Each of the elevators actually has a different motif, and people really light up the minute they get inside. That was a good elevator pitch, Scott. <laughs> Tell us what floor we're on and tell us what we're looking at. We're on the seventh floor of the museum in a gallery that we've created around the uh, idea of Calder Circus. So um, one of the things that's uh, really interesting to us about this gallery is that Calder Circus is one of the most beloved icons of the Whitney's collection. It came to us uh, in the 80s very famously after a big fundraising drive, and uh, it's beloved by children, by adults. I remember actually my grandparents taking me to see it in the Breuer building when I was a little boy and uh, falling in love with Calder. And it's a real privilege actually to be able to in install it now as a curator here. And what we wanted to do, though, was give the circus a different uh, kind of context than usual. We might say it's a bit more grown up, because when you look around the gallery, you see some of the themes in the circus, like performance, like music, even the ideas of menace, of sex, of um, voyeurism and spectacle. Uh, 
kind of reverberating in other works. You see right behind me this great George Bellows painting of the boxing ring of Dempsey and Frippo. You see Reginald Marsh's uh, images of Times Square with people kind of strutting about, both looking and being looked at. Uh, Great pictures of famous performers like Paul Robeson and John Coltrane. Uh, The different ideas about kind of going out at night, about being seen and, and seeing. So tell us about choosing the works that uh, had themes of spectacle and violence and voyeurism and the spectacle that can go along with the circus. You know, so you've got your 22,000 works. What constraints and limits did you set on yourselves? Were there things that for years you've been thinking, I've always wanted to see that next to Calder Circus? Or did you discover things as you were going through the catalog? Like, how did that process of finding, you know, the Ouija photograph and the boxing painting, how did, how did that happen? Well, it's a great question, and it was a really intensive process. Uh, There was a team of curators that have been working on this exhibition for almost four years, and one of the ideas that we had from the start was that when we opened our new building, we weren't just going to show the kind of known masterpieces, but that we were going to present a really intellectually challenging exhibition that was going to represent a new take both on the Whitney's collection but also on American art history, generally speaking. So we went all around the world and looked at peer uh, institutions and their displays. We invited scholars in to meet with us, and we literally uh, looked at our holdings piece by piece. I can't say I saw all 22,000, but saw quite a lot in storage. What's happening to the Mary Newman over there? They're dusting it. <laughs> Wait, sorry. I, 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 we, we, we're in the, the middle of a gallery. The camera's not running, Matt. It's just sound. <laughs> I just leaned over and saw a bear. That's the Bear Newman, right? Yes. It's this big, tall red canvas that I saw this weekend when I came, and it's leaning up against the wall the way I have my standing mirror. I haven't gotten around to hanging it and being very delicately... Uh, it looks like it's having paint applied, but it's being dusted. Yes, exactly. That's our uh, genius painting conservator, Matt Skopek, who's dusting the Newman. No, uh, you didn't just decide to touch it up a little bit No, with no, paint. I promise there's no red paint on that brush. Uh, <laughs> although, you know, it's a good thing that this is an audio recording, because that's the kind of thing we don't usually show uh, our visitors. We're here on a Tuesday uh, when the museum is closed to the public, but you can see a lot is happening at the museum. Even when we're closed, it's an active site. We have uh, tours coming through, we're doing maintenance, and we're doing uh, press interviews like the one that we're doing here. So it's a 20 24-7 institution. Uh, sorry to be pulling back the curtain, Mr. Wizard, but do, um, do just a quick question. That's a very abstract, bright, it's not actually that bright, but it's a bold red canvas and very abstract and it hangs near a window. Do you have to dust works like that more often than you dust the other ones because you would see the dust more clearly on it because of where it's hanging? Well, it's true that when you have oblique light across the surface of a painting, it brings the dust out more, as you might know from that mirror you have at home. <laughs> uh, if you put it in raking light near a window, you're more likely to, to see that for sure. But no, all the paintings are looked after. Of course, those that are under glass um, have less of a concern in terms of a particle buildup. Uh, but Matt, he goes through all the galleries and checks things, the sculptures, you know, on a daily if not weekly basis and um it's just part of the routine maintenance that we do. Interestingly, the more visitors you have, which we have more visitors than we used to, the more dust you get. Uh, so that's something we knew from the Jeff Koons show also. Uh, the challenges of being a more visited museum uh, pose certain interesting uh, back-of-house challenges that we're rising to meet. Well, dust is skin, basically, right? A exactly. lot of it is skin flakes from the visitors. Exactly. So the visitors are leaving themselves on your art. <laughs> yes, that's such a lovely image. I'm going to be pondering that all afternoon in my office. <laughs> washing your hands. Okay, sorry to interrupt your fascinating train of thought about going through all of the old works. I just was uh, so delightful to see a little, um, not night at the museum, but Tuesday at the museum 
action. So you were saying you, you looked through a lot of the works. Right. So we studied uh, the works piece by piece. And, you know, many of these works were things that we hadn't seen before or that actually nobody has had seen in a very long time. 20% of the works in this show, about 20%, uh, have never been exhibited before by the Whitney, or at least not for uh, several decades. So we wanted this exhibition to be both a mix of the most known pieces from our collection with some of the least known. And that there would be a sense of, of surprise, of discovery, uh, even a kind of disputatiousness about the canon, an idea that uh, maybe we were making ourselves a subject to revision or debate, a kind of curiosity. These were some of the principles that guided the selection of our show. And when you talk about putting forward a new idea about American art, what's the idea? Well, I wouldn't say that there was a single prevailing idea, but rather that at each moment that we were looking at, any decade, any movement, we were kind of questioning that. Uh, For example, we're standing in a gallery here about uh, political art from the 1930s and 40s, and you see uh, two of the most famous works from our collection, the Ben Sean painting of Sacco and Vanzetti, who were, you know, it's a famous example of an image about the miscarriage of justice. And on the other side, you see uh, Jacob Lawrence's war series, showing the soldiers shipping off and then fighting in World War two. And what was interesting to us then was to kind of build out from some of these masterpieces of fuller, richer stories that maybe people didn't know. So on either side of Sacco and Vanzetti, you see two other kind of mini essays. And one really focuses on the Depression and on labor movements in the 30s. You see Pat Whalen, who was a labor organizer painted by Alice Neal, along with a Hooverville in Central Park by Louis Lozowick. We know it's Central Park because you see the, the San Remo behind. On the other side of the gallery, you see a whole group of images about lynching black men in the 1930s. And this was one of those places in the collection that we were actually surprised by our own holdings. We had something like 40 prints and drawings depicting lynchings. Uh, Some of them were of specific events that people would have known about from the news at that time. Others were more uh, generalized images of lynchings that were really made by artists as a kind of activist statement to draw attention to the horrors of lynching and actually to help pass an anti-lynching bill in Congress in the 30s that ultimately failed to pass. As we were doing our research, what we would always ask ourselves was, how did this work feel in the present? And an example um, like this was really fascinating because, of course, there were so many news stories about uh, Trayvon Martin, about Eric Garner, about the events in Ferguson. We would often think that some of these stories that the works were telling about the 1930s still had a life and a relevance today. Okay, so uh, maybe now we can go down to the fifth floor and look at some more of the contemporary collection. Great. All right, there's too many interesting things in this museum. We finally made it to the fifth floor. Um, Scott, tell us a little bit about what's going on on this floor and then also kind of the opening tableau when you step off the elevators. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we're on the fifth floor, which is where we've shown the most recent art from our collection, really from the 1960s until about yesterday. I, I joke yesterday, but I think that the most recent piece in the show is from 2014, which is great because it really reflects our commitment to the art of the present, to living artists. And this floor is such an amazing space. It's 18,200 square feet without a single column. It's the largest column-free space for exhibiting art in New York. And for a curator or an artist, this is really a, a great dream because we can put the walls anywhere we want. We can put the art anywhere we want and so this is just our first pass at building it out and we tried some really um, 
I think, surprising uh, physical juxtapositions and installation strategies. Here you see when you get off the elevator that you are really confronted by this uh, mise-en-scene of three works of art. There's uh, a wallpaper covering the wall which shows uh, Ronald Reagan with a bullseye and uh, it says under Reagan, he kills me. And some people don't really get this at first. They think, oh, this is a, a pun, like he makes me laugh. And actually this was made by the artist Donald Moffat as part of an AIDS activist project to um, be posters all around New York. And the artists were saying, you know, hey, Ronald Reagan hasn't even mentioned the word AIDS. It's 1987, and this is a huge public health crisis, an epidemic that is literally killing me, is what these artists were saying. So we've, we've paired this wallpaper with two uh, great paintings, one by David Sally and one by Barbara Kruger, who are really uh, wonderful artists in our collection. And they're both, in a way, about uh, the confrontation of the sexes, about media, about uh, found imagery. And uh, to hang these paintings on wallpaper was a bit of a leap. It's something that we thought a lot about. We asked the artist if they were going to be uh, cool with that, and they said yes. And we think that that kind of provocation really suggests something about our point of view as a museum, as curators, always kind of pushing the envelope. One other thing I'm curious about is the diversity of the artists whose works are shown here. I'm noticing a lot of names of women and what appear to be artists of color. How did you guys think about that as you put the show together? Yeah, that's something we took really seriously. You know, as we talked about these ideas of who is an American, we realized that even within our own shores, of course, there were um, many artists who'd been left out of the story before traditionally. Uh, It's really interesting to note that this exhibition uh, from 1900 to the present is about 20% artists of color. That's a number we're really proud of. We didn't have any kind of quotas, but I can tell you it's hard uh, to think of a show like that because really so many of the pre-war artists are uh, basically white men, you know, up until the 40s and 50s. Uh, the show is 30% women from 1900 to the present. We know we could do better next time, but uh, it's 38% women from 1970 to the present. These are, uh, I think, statistics that are important, not because we're trying to get you know any kind of star for political correctness, but we want the show to be inclusive and really reflective of the artists who live in this country and work in this place. In relation to that, Scott, I don't know if you were at all a part of choosing it, but what about the name of this exhibition, America is Hard to See? I know it's a line from a Robert Frost poem. I was wondering how it was chosen and kind of what you wanted Mm -hmm. to convey with that title. Yeah, the title of the exhibition was actually a great uh, brainstorm by Donna DeSalvo, who led our team on this project, and she knew it from uh, both a Robert Frost poem and a political film by uh, Emile D'Antonio. What we liked about this idea of America is hard to see is that uh, this place, America, is kind of like an idea that we don't really know. It's hard to perceive. The art sometimes is hard to perceive. There's this challenge that I mentioned, the sense of uh, disputatiousness, this difficulty in pinning things down, and the way that art artists themselves kept trying to see this place, the subjects of these artists, uh, and how their work was about a kind of perception of the world they were living in. It really spoke to us in that way. You know, it's especially sad that that Steve Metcalf is not here with us today because Robert Frost is his favorite poet. He can quote him at length, and uh, and I'm sure he would love the fact that this exhibit is is named for a line from one of his poems. Yeah, he would probably know the poem, actually, which is sort of about Columbus uh, kind of missing his mark uh, in terms of where he was headed. So that uh, has a a really funny history for us. he was off not just by one degree, but by a whole sea, right? There's a line like that. Exactly. Well, so we're here in what is essentially the final room of the exhibit, which shows a number of striking works of 9-11. I'm looking at the face of Osama bin Laden uh, and Dick Cheney. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the work in this room and the thinking here. Yeah, we wanted this show to come right up to the present. Uh, As I mentioned, the Whitney is a museum that has historically had a great interest in the art of 
It's Time. Uh, all of the artists in our show, we like to remind ourselves, were contemporary artists once. Even Edward Hopper, obviously, now looks like a great historical master, but he was a, a young artist at one time, making work, showing in Whitney Annuals. And we wanted the exhibition to always reflect that sense of contemporaneity and to come right up to the present day. And here we really asked ourselves, you know, what's it like for artists to make art after 9-11, after Hurricanes Katrina and Sandy in the face of climate change, after the uh, catastrophic financial events of 2008? And it was amazing to find so many of our works uh, in our collection that really directly reflected on these issues, on a sense of uncertainty, on a sense of malaise. Some are quite literal and specific in, let's say, uh, Richard Serra's image of Abu Ghraib or Ellsworth Kelly's uh, image of Ground Zero. It's kind of terrific to see their more senior, older artists reflect newly on the time that they're living in. Others are a little bit more abstract, like Mark Bradford's uh, wonderful painting that's in some ways related to the flood after Katrina, or Dana Schutz's drawing that's called Building the Boat While Sailing, uh, which I like to think of is about kind of figuring out your time while you're living in it and just trying to stay afloat. So these um, works here actually make a kind of great uh, continuity if you think back to the works from the 30s where we were talking about politics uh, and how artists were engaged at that time, that that's not something that's ended, that artists are always making sense of the the world that they're in, or trying to see this place America, as our title suggests. All right, Scott, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Thank you so much for walking us through the, this exhibition and the new space, and uh, I hope we'll be back again to see what you guys do next. Great. Thanks so much for coming, and I hope you come back, too. All right, so we're back in the studio, back from the Whitney, and uh, sorry you missed it, Steve. I know, so sad, but uh, I, along with our listeners, can check out uh, photos of the experience on Facebook. And uh, anyway, check it out, facebook.com slash culturefest. Uh, all right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? We have a new sponsor today, Steve Bowl and Branch, which is a company that makes buying good sheets cheap, easy, and devoid of hype. This is a sponsor that's near and dear to my heart because I believe that the time and effort spent making your bed really cozy and pleasing is time very well spent. You spend nearly a third of your life sleeping and lying in that bed. And so having clean sheets and having sheets that make you happy and some, and you know, whatever your preferences are, do you like it hot? Do you like it cold? Do you like a big heavy duvet? Do you like a tightly tucked in, you know, scratchy wool blanket? Like whatever you like, I think it's worth your time to make your bed in such a way that when you get into it at the end of the day, you think, ooh, yes, like here I am in my cozy little bed space. So Bull and Branch can help you with that. They make buying bedding ridiculously simple so that when you buy a Bull and Branch, you don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to worry about little things like your sheets shrinking so much that you can't tuck them in or big things like whether they were made in a sweatshop by child labor. Bull and Branch is the only bedding company that is fair trade certified so that you can trust that they're made in humane conditions. And they also cut out all of the middleman department store markups so that you can get amazing luxury sheets sheets at about half the price. Bowl and Branch actually sent along uh, a set of sheets for us to check out, and they are very nice feeling. They feel somehow both crisp and soft at the same time. They have a very nice hand, uh, which is a thing that people in the business used to talk about how fabric feels in your hand. My sister who works in fashion is always telling me about the hand of a garment. Um, I think it's, it's like, like ma- what mouthfeel is to wine. What mouthfeel is to wind is what hand is to garment. And I, when when we were feeling the sheets this weekend, I was like, they almost feel like crunchy, but in a good way. They it's have, like a croissant, crisp and soft at once. Yeah. And she was like, crunchy is totally a word in the biz. Like you can say like, oh, it has that good crunch. Um, I love it. There can be like sheet snobs the way there are wine snobs. Oh, there are so many just, sheet snobs. Oh my God. 
gosh. It's I, just, a, but it's in it, but I mean, in like an attempt to, like, you could have lyings instead of tastings, right? <laughs> and they lie down, you lie down on the bed, and everyone's vying to come up with the most preposterous adjective to describe it. You know, totally. hints of hints of pencil shavings and, <laughs> and moldy books. I have like a like a bit of um, a bit of cotton ball with an essence of pashmina. Um, <laughs> In any event, they're very nice sheets, and the company is so confident that you will love them that you can try them risk-free for 30 nights. So it's hard to say that about many other sheets. You can just give them a shot, and if their hand and mouthfeel and sheet feel is not to your liking, then you can send them back. But I think I think you'll be satisfied. If you order right now, Bolin Branch will give you $50 off a set of sheets plus free shipping. Just go to bolinbranch.com and use the promo code CULTURE. That's right, $50 towards a sheet set by going right now to B-O-L-L and branch.com and using the promo code CULTURE. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? My endorsement this week comes courtesy of our wonderful intern, Lindsay Albrock, who in her research compilation for our money segment happened to include something that included a link to this site called blindfilmcritic.com, which is run by a guy named Tommy Edison, who was born blind and who works during the day as a traffic reporter at a Connecticut radio station. But his avocation is to review films on this website. And uh, I happened to watch a clip of him talking about money, because in addition to the film critic part of his website, Tommy Edison has this segment called The Tommy Edison Experience, which is basically a bunch of short videos about how he encounters various things in the world as a blind person. And there happened to be a short video that, that I watched about money and how difficult it is for him to deal with American money because all the bills feel exactly the same. Right, they're all the same size. They're actually. all the same we size. We have incredibly non-disability friendly money. Right. There's no consideration whatsoever as to how the visually disabled would handle money. And he compares that to Australian money, which is sized by denomination. So the less it's worth, the smaller the bill is. And Or, you know, there could be other, there could be hand feel. There could be other ways of distinguishing among bills that the American currency system doesn't bother with at all. Tommy Edison is just a, a jolly, hail fellow, well-met sort of person who really walks you through his, his daily experience. So go to blindfilmcritic.com and, and look at some of his videos. They're great. Wonderful. Uh, Julia, what do you have? So I have two things to recommend today, and they are both inspired by our Whitney visit. The first is Jerry Saltz's essay about the new Whitney. It's called The New New Museum. It appeared in New York Magazine. Jerry Saltz is the terrific, just transcendently wonderful art critic for New York Magazine. He won the National Magazine Award for Criticism uh, this year for his work last year. But this essay, The New New Museum, just did a host of extraordinary things for a piece of writing to do. It was a lively, descriptive, vivid, and personable description, account, and review of the new muse- of the new Whitney. But it also, I think, was like a very incisive, perceptive essay about the state of the modern museum and the state of the contemporary art landscape and how it has evolved over the last decades, how the four big museums in New York have navigated it with varying degrees of success, and why the new Whitney is, in Saltz's opinion, such a triumph. The other thing I will recommend is a show at another museum right now. So one of the rooms that we visited at the Whitney was the one that had excavated some of the art surrounding lynchings and uh, that juxtaposed the Sacco and Vanzetti portrait with the Jacob Lawrence series about African-American soldiers in World War II. I also went earlier this year to see the Jacob Lawrence show at MoMA right now, which features very prominently his series on the Great Migration. And it is a show that is powerful in that it introduces you to uh, the collected work of this very interesting artist. But it's also a show that is 
extraordinary to look at in this year. I, you know, we're recording this on the Tuesday after the horrific shootings in Charleston uh, in the year when the national media has begun to pay more attention to police violence and how it is visited on black communities. And I think part of trying to understand these news events and for me as a journalist to cover them forces you to think about the black American experience in the context of the broad sweep of history and Jacob Lawrence's focus on the Great Migration and, and this kind of transitional moment in black American history, kind of between slavery and reconstruction and you know the present, it felt incredibly pertinent and powerful to look at not just as art and history, but as context for the current news moment. So I cannot recommend highly enough going to MoMA to see the Jacob Lawrence show. Um, and of course, you should read Jerry Saltz and go to The Whitney too. Yeah, that's wonderful. Anyway, so on a somewhat related note, I never know how to feel about certain painters who've become uh, over-familiar through slightly chintzy mechanical reproduction, like you know Van Gogh's on coffee mugs and tote bags. He's everywhere. It's not so much that I feel as though his status as a secular saint has been degraded by his you know omnipresence on cheap merchandise. It's more that you can't see in a way beyond the familiarity of the images back to the active genius that it was to create them. So when you go and actually see these works, as I did recently go to see the irises and the roses that are collected at the Metropolitan Museum in Manhattan, they fixed in your mind in a way that makes it almost impossible to think that they exist as unique objects somewhere. The same way that when I once ran into Bob Dylan on the street, I was like, you can't be there because you're there, there and there. You're everywhere. You're in the iPod. You're in the sphere. You're in the collective imagination. You're not just some guy with underwear, you know? I, I, you know, it's just, I, I, and I explained this to him out loud as the um, bodyguard uh, ushered me away. And he answered, I'm not just some guy with underwear. <laughs> Which is funny because clearly the world doesn't want to hear this because a very similar guy hustled me out of the Van Gogh exhibit as I delivered the same lecture. <laughs> People just don't want to hear it. Um, but anyway, so I love Van Gogh, and I recently have read like every Van Gogh biography that I can get a, my hand on. And with some art, you have to work through its obscurity or its difficulty or its inaccessibility. And with some art, you just have to work through layers and layers of familiarity to get to it. But I think it is there. Well, anyway, so my first recommendation, my first endorsement is, is the Van Gogh exhibit. It's really worth going to see these. And they, even though it's only four paintings, I will say that the wall text is beautifully done. It really puts into context when he painted these. These were done in the asylum. Uh, how the colors have changed over the past century, which is fascinating because they were works. And so, I mean, they're beautiful realizations of line and color, obviously, but color was huge to Van Gogh. Violent, eye-smarting color was one of the reasons why his contemporaries couldn't look at his paintings. And those colors have really changed and really faded over time. So we're looking at something in some ways quite different. Uh, anyway, it's very worth going, even though it's only four paintings. But my second endorsement is... Um, I've had a similar confusion about Edward Hopper, and I hadn't really worked it out at all, because I think of Hopper as a poet of certain American affects that are very easily converted into cliches, right? So he's the poet of a certain kind of American loneliness, and on and on, and yet I feel as though I emotionally respond to Hopper at a level that transcends those specific cliches, but I've never been entirely sure of that, and 
walking my kids through the Whitney, I came across that painting whose title I don't know, but it's a set of row houses. Early Sunday morning. I was just looking at it this morning over Scott Rothkopf's shoulder and losing track of what he was saying because it's such a wonderful painting to look at. Right. An extraordinary painting, right? One of the great American paintings and one that one has seen a million times without ever seeing it in the flesh. And I finally saw it and was very moved by it. And it has done in my life one of the things a painting should do, which is it's taught me how to see something that was banal as a little shard of eternity, if you'll permit me, which is there's a very similar set of row houses in Hudson, New York, right across from the uh, ice cream parlor that I often take my kids to in the summer on a Sunday evening when the light is just slant. And you can't look at those, just as you can't look at irises or certain roses without thinking of Van Gogh, you can't look at those row houses without thinking of Hopper. But one always wonders, am I imprisoned within a set of received cliches when I think this way. And then I came across this essay, the recently deceased poet Mark Strand uh, was kind of obsessed with Hopper, which I didn't realize. He wrote an entire short book on Hopper back in the 90s. And apparently he had written for the New York Review of Books, he'd written a review of an exhibition of Hopper's of Hopper's drawings, which was at the old Whitney. And it was found among his things in handwritten form and transcribed for the uh, for the magazine by uh, Mary Jo Salter, herself an extraordinary poet. And that essay about Hopper is so perfectly rendered. I mean, it really is the result of a long lifetime spent thinking about these paintings and what these paintings mean and what their relationship is to the cliches we feel about American loneliness and, you know, the kind of social barrenness of the American landscape and on and on and on. He addresses all of those things. It's, It's just an absolutely perfect piece of art criticism that will forever reassure me in my love of these paintings and what they've meant to me. I I can't recommend it highly enough. I can't wait to read that as a huge fan of both Mark Strand and Edward Hopper. Oh, I know. I'm so excited to get my hands on the book, too. That sounds great. So that essay, which we'll link to, of course, on the show page, is in the New York Review of Books by Mark Strand about the painter uh, Edward Hopper. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Steve Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Well, have you heard about the painter Vincent Van Gogh Who loved color and who let it show And in the museum, what have we here? The most soulful painter since Jan Vermeer And he loved, he loved life so bad Paintings had twice the color of the paintings had so bad that the world had to know he loved color and he let it show.